Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today for our episode, we have some kingdom questions by our listeners. Well, this is an episode we've been in the in the works for a while. I appreciate all you listeners uh, calling in with your kingdom questions. But uh, before we get there, it's been a while since we've been able to have an episode. So we thank you as our listeners for your patience. But uh, Scott, what have been some of the things that you've been up to? Well, I've had a, a summer of travel. That's what we call it at our house. And uh, it's made it's made our life full and full of joy. But at the same time, some of the uh, ordinary little things that I do are are really struggling to get done. Even writing and uh, reading uh, has been really hard. I've been able to maintain the blog only by reposting some things. But we were in Turkey and Greece for two weeks with a great group of people as we viewed sights of Paul and John. I was home a little bit, then I did a, a D-Min course, but I had to get ready for that D-Min course, so that took a week. Uh, or more to get everything all uh, set in stone. And then we were off to uh, Alaska for about a week or a little bit more, uh, where I, I led a retreat on Harvester Island with Leslie Leyland Fields. Then we were back a little bit, and I um, we had to get ready to go to Northern Ireland, where I spoke at a conference um, way up on the, the northern end in Coleraine, uh, and it was a wonderful time there, wonderful time in Alaska. Then I was back and taught uh, an, uh, an intensive course with my new Master of Arts and New Testament uh, cohort, a fantastic week of students who are outstanding. And then... Yeah, I'll um, just pipe I've in. Been... Yeah, that was a fun time. I'm in that that group. And uh, yeah, we've got met so many new friends and excited what that's going to yeah. be. And we, yeah, I thought it was a great week. I mean, Northern is very excited about the quality of students that we're now attracting. And then I've spent this week doing some editing of my Philemon commentary and a little book I've written on the angels. And tonight, Chris and I fly to Finland for a little bit of eight days where I'll be doing some lectures at a free church conference in Tampere, Finland, which is north of Helsinki. So it's been a very busy, um, I'm not complaining, uh, it's been a joyous time, uh, but it has made doing this podcast extremely difficult, and in the middle of all that, I had knee surgery. Um, minor knee surgery, uh, if you call any kind of surgery minor, I had arthroscopy uh, for a torn meniscus in my right knee, so that that kind of gummed up some of that time as well. So So now that you got so the yeah, you're back and you got the knee thing all, all figured out. Now that that's good to go, the Cubs got you called up for the playoffs upcoming. <laughs> the Cubs yeah. are a very good baseball team and uh everybody laughed at me for a few years when I said that last year and this year I predicted this several years ago the Cubs would be good. You just have to watch and everybody laughed at me and now People are writing me and asking me for playoff tickets. And, of course, I honor those who have been faithful to the Chicago Cubs. You honor faithfulness. I think that's biblical, isn't it? Yeah, it is very biblical, <laughs> though I'm not sure the Chicago Cubs are very biblical. 
Uh, well, we got some questions waiting for us. I, I yeah. guess we better jump in um, to those. These are the listener ask questions. We're calling kingdom questions. So um, if if you've sent some in, again, thank you for that. Uh, if you want to send me more, I can. I'm always going to be accepting uh, these questions. Just email me at c robbins. That's c r o b b i n s at seminary.edu, and uh, I'll be collecting these. And and every so often, I imagine we'll be doing some episodes. Just called Kingdom Questions with Scott. So um, to jump in here, our first one is from Becky Miller. She's one of those MANT cohort students that Scott mentioned we started that that class. And um, she asks, Bill Hull talks about conversion and discipleship, both being important. Conversion without discipleship is nothing. How do we help people in our churches decide to become actual disciples of Jesus and not just converts to Christianity? Well, Becky has a good question, and Becky is deeply involved in her church there in Netherlands. So uh, this springs not just out of some kind of a theoretical question, but springs directly out of pastoral ministry and life. And so I'd like to back up. I like that book by Bill Hull, and um, I wrote, I I endorsed that book, and uh, I've known Bill for many years, and I really like what he is doing. But let me back up a little bit. Uh, and say that I believe that the gospel that we have created or that we often preach uh, further creates a culture that both props up that gospel and legitimates that gospel and then makes that gospel, that culture makes that gospel very, very difficult to challenge. Let me explain. That gospel is basically this, that um, that. Jesus died for your sins, and if you accept him into your life, uh, uh, that you will be saved, and you can do nothing about it, that you will be saved permanently. Uh, This is uh, a doctrine of eternal security. Juan Carlos Ortiz, a great uh, Latin American uh, pastor, preacher, etc., and author, called this the perpetual childhood of the believer— But deep behind Juan Carlos Ortiz was the German Lutheran and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who called this cheap grace. And at the very core of this doctrine, this gospel, I should say, that people have learned to embrace is the idea that it's all by grace. And that means you can do nothing. And that means nothing that you do can jeopardize that salvation. Now, all of these are 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 sort of fancy ideas that we can find in scraps and fragments in the New Testament and at times as major themes. But the problem is Jesus never talked like this. Paul never talked like this. Certainly Moses and the prophets never talked like this. Peter didn't talk like this. James didn't talk like this. And my goodness, the writer of Hebrews would jump out of his skin to hear this kind of language Mm -hmm. talked about the gospel. And John, uh, throughout the book of Revelation, is honoring those who are faithful and obedient to the very end and who are martyrs. So we've created a culture based upon a very shallow understanding of the gospel. And that culture creates people who think they are Christians. And Becky is saying people who are um, <clears throat> they're, they're converts to Christianity rather than disciples of Jesus. I I don't even like to use the word converts for these people. They are uh, 
participants in the Christian religion, but I, I, I don't know that they're Christians myself. That's not my uh, decision to make. However, I think that there are, is a, a fresh wave blowing throughout the world. Um, there is, a, I know that people like Bill Hull gain uh, big ears from people when they start talking about these topics. So there is a, a, a refreshing need for us to go back to the Gospels and to listen to how Jesus called people. He didn't say, you know, accept me into your heart and you can go to heaven and now do whatever you want. Jesus, and this is the language that I use in my book, um, One Life, and that is, uh, a Christian is someone who follows Jesus, is a follower of Jesus, and followers of Jesus follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that's Midwestern Mark Twain type language, but what it means is people who don't follow Jesus are not Christians. People who follow Jesus are Christians. Christians are people who are called to follow Jesus. So I think Becky is on to something here. We need more emphasis on this. And I think the way to do this in a culture that's already been established, and she's probably part of it, is gradually and patiently but firmly to teach what Jesus teaches and to challenge people to follow Jesus and every now and then uh, lay down the stinger and say Jesus says that he wants people who follow him and people who don't follow him are not the people of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, I think... A few times in a year, people can be awakened to the seriousness of what it means to be connected to Jesus, the seriousness of his call for us to follow him, and I trust many will awaken to a much more serious and deepened sense of discipleship. Yeah, it seems kind of like with this deepened sense of discipleship and and kind of... um, hiring the bar with that, that uh, it naturally changes as well how you do conversion or proselytizing or evangelism or whatever word you want to call and, and use it uh, in the exclamation of, you know, what do, what does it mean to, to be a Christian? What does it mean to to repent and to change sides? And, and all of those things that uh, it it changes that message a little bit, I guess it seems like. It sure does. And, and I think that we we move away from, uh, I've used this language for many, for several decades, uh, but it, it still works, I think. And that is we move away from focusing on decisions and we reorient everything we're doing toward disciples. And I think that's what Becky is struggling with. And I think that's what many people uh, you know, many, many pastors have told me that their church is full of Christians and hardly any of them are disciples or they're full of people who think they're Christians. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I believe that we need we need we need this message that cheap grace is even more cheap in the United States. And, and there are many people today for whom grace just simply means God loves you no matter what you do. And therefore, it doesn't matter what you do, God's going to continue to love you. There's a sense in which, yes, it is true that God loves us, and it's not on the basis of our works or our status. But those who have been enveloped in the, in the God of the Bible, those who have been enveloped by the arms of Jesus, are people for whom grace is become, has become transformative, mm-hmm. and their lives are taking on completely different Um, aspects and dimensions, and anything less than that 
makes a mockery of the greatness of the gospel and uh, and the message that Jesus came to offer. Yeah, I love, I think it's Dallas Willard's line about uh, saints aren't the people who need grace less. The saints fuel their lives on grace. It's what, it's the driving force. And I think, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I, I feel like that's kind of saying the same thing and, and, you know, we're, yeah, we're yeah. driving. Of, so saints, uh, saints are people who fuel their lives on grace. He mm-hmm. said that. That's a great. Yeah, yeah I think so. Well, yeah. part of uh, a, a question that is associated with this, probably kind of, I guess, on the beginning point in the role of baptism, um, Paul Walker asks, would you agree that a commitment slash confession of faith is the precursor to baptism in the New Testament? Uh, if we're going to go on the basis of what the New Testament explicitly says, um we, we are going to have a hard time answering that question with clarity and with robustness. Uh, what we find, say, in Acts chapter 2 is, is a preacher, Peter, who calls people to repent and, and to respond to what he has preached about Jesus. So people who repent and respond to this message of Jesus have embraced Jesus at some level. So over time, the wisdom of the church has been that uh, that uh, adult baptisms, and uh, I think it's, it's wise at this point to say it that way, uh, adult baptisms entail um, an embrace of a robust understanding of what people are getting into. And the early church, the creed, developed out of baptismal catechisms. So the the creed, the person who was being baptized, now this would be an adult, mm-hmm. um, already in the second, third, and fourth centuries, is asked, do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in God the Son? Do you believe in God the Holy Spirit? So it had this Trinitarian echo and framework that was at work and people were embracing those things in the context many times of persecution and martyrdom and suspicion and rejection. But it that that crystallization in those creedal uh, questions asked for the person who was being baptized was the result of catechism. So I think what, what we learned from the New Testament is that people were embracing Jesus as he was preached by the apostles. We don't have all the sermons. We don't have all the statements that are being made. We don't have any uh, person being baptized, the baptizand. Uh, we don't have any of them being asked any questions uh, of a creedal nature. Uh, but I think that it, w- it is profoundly wise because we tap into the greatness of the church tradition that at b- baptism, people confess the deepness of their faith. Now, let me back off of this for people who also baptize infants. The infant baptism uh, practice of the vast majority of churches in the world, including my own church, the Anglican Church of North America, uh, I'm a part of Todd Hunter's group, and we, uh, we practice infant baptism. But infant baptism is in the context of a covenant, a covenanted community. 
people's commitment to rear and nurture this child into the faith, and then uh, children, uh, as they become adults, go through catechism and confirmation, where they confirm the baptismal vows of their parents and the church when they were infants, so that by the time uh, they are adults, for them to be functioning members of the church, they have confessed all these great things. So whether it is only as an adult or whether it is in the process of churches, in a sense, socializing and nurturing people into the faith, a confession is at the heart of what baptism is all about. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, so it seems like hopefully that answers your, your question, Paul. I'd be curious, Scott, um, I know one of the things the church I work at and um, um, probably a lot of churches who do a, a adult immersion baptisms, if they have children who are raised in the church, they'll do something like a baby dedication at the beginning, entering into that covenanted community uh, relationship. And um, then when they profess their faith, then it's the the immersion baptism. What do you think about similarities, differences of, of something like that? As something I know it has doesn't necessarily maybe represent throughout church history in the same way, but yeah. Well, you know the interesting thing. I mean, I I don't really want to debate. I have a uh, I don't really want to debate too much infant baptism and adult baptism uh, in this setting because it could take a long time. Sure. And I have a manuscript of 10,000 words written on this uh, that will be converted into a manuscript of about 25,000 words for a small book. Uh, so something that is of immense interest to me. But it is very interesting to me that de ch children dedication uh, is a sort of tipping of the hat to the re reality that Christian parents uh, want to do something for their children when they're born as a part of a religious commitment and covenant. Uh, that, that's what that is. Uh, they don't want to baptize because they believe in adult baptism. So they, they're not going to baptize that child, but they're going to dedicate that child. Uh, in a sense, that's what uh, is done by people who circumcised their male sons. Uh, that's what sons means, doesn't it? Uh, in the Old Testament time, or in Israel, and still to this day, circumcision is a covenant commitment of that family to the covenant and to the rearing of that child uh, into the faith. And infant baptism is the same thing. So to me, it is a, 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 I, I would say that the dedication of a child, while I deeply respect baptismal or Baptist instincts, and the significance of personal faith, and therefore that baptism should be postponed until someone has made a confession of faith. Uh, the minute they start dedicating children, they're starting to tread on waters that lead pretty clearly toward uh, a desire for a, a public ritual commitment. And that's exactly what baptism has functioned as in the history of the covenant churches uh, uh, who have uh, baptized infants. Sure. 
Yeah, that make, that makes total sense. Well, we have another question here, uh, still centering on the the topic of, of baptism, and and a lot of these are are you know all of these questions kind of are centering around church life and, and discipleship and the practicality, a lot of that. And um, Doug McPherson asked uh, in First Corinthians fifteen twenty nine, we see a reference to the practice of baptizing for the dead. What is this sentence referring to, and is this a practice inside the church or a pagan practice that Paul alludes to for the sake of his argument? Well, if I had an answer to that one, I would uh, I would end the endless discussions in people's commentaries and in monographs and in journal articles on 1 Corinthians 15, <laughs> 29. So I don't think there's an absolutely firm answer, and I certainly don't have one myself uh, that I find compelling. But in the logic of 1 Corinthians 15, this is what is very clear. Paul is probably describing a practice going on in the Corinthian church that they are being baptized for people who are already dead. Paul, I believe, is not explicitly agreeing with the practice or disagreeing with the practice, but instead he goes behind it to say this. Okay, folks, if you're baptizing people for dead people, then you actually believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and therefore you should continue to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and not being deny and not deny the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, this is in a chapter where Paul is contesting uh, people connected to the church or to the Corinthian church who are denying the resurrection. And Paul wants to affirm the absolute centrality of the resurrection. He even makes that grand statement that if there is no resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and he mm -hmm. means by that, that body came back to life in the flesh, even if it was a transformed flesh and a flesh designed for glory. That was a body that came back to life. Paul says, if you don't believe in that, your faith is a waste of time. In other words, without the actual resurrection of Jesus, Christianity is a fraud. Well, Paul is talking about that context, so he uses their practice against them. He deconstructs his opponents by saying, all right, so you're going to get baptized for the dead? Well, then you believe in the resurrection. My, my argument has another argument for it, or, or my conclusion has another argument. So uh, it looks to me like there were Corinthians who were actually being baptized for the dead. Paul does not approve of it or disapprove of it, and the church has never confirmed this practice. So I would say, ultimately, the church has understood that Paul was disapproving of the practice, but trying to get to the theology that was supposedly at work in the people who actually practiced that. Hmm. Yeah, and he was trying to, to get them back to the, the resurrection of what it was all about. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. Cool. cool. All right. Last question for our episode today and um, is a little bit of a, a change of gears, but um, is still in the, the vein of, of church life and um, practicality. Joseph Johnson asked, well, what are some good ways to think about living week in, week out with complementarians? 
in ways that avoid putting stumbling blocks in front of them without backing down from egalitarian paths of interpretation. Any thoughts on how to navigate those waters wisely? Yes, I mean, it's a good question because uh, at the at the fundamental level of reality of church life, uh, people disagree on these issues. Some people believe that women can be ordained and be senior pastors. Some people believe that maybe they don't want them to be senior pastors, but they can preach and teach in their churches. Some people think that they can't preach and teach or be senior pastors, etc. And then there are others who, who see women as fully um, absorbed in the powers of the Spirit, and whatever God grants women to do, uh, people should uh, recognize, endorse, and in your, if your church does this, ordain. Uh, so there are, there are local church difficulties with this. Uh, so let me put it this way first. I do not believe that this is a matter of the gospel. Uh, I know there are egalitarians who think this is the gospel. I disagree. I know there are complementarians who think this is the gospel. Uh, and for them, it's, it's, you know, it's a line in the sand. You cross it, you've become a liberal you, you are on some kind of mythical, slippery slope that's going to lead you to deny the faith. I totally disagree with that approach to Christian faith, to Christian argument. Uh, so let's, let's just put it on, on the table. This is not a gospel issue. This is an issue over which sincere, Bible-believing, evangelical, godly-type Christians disagree. All right? Mm -hmm. So it's not about whether you're a Christian or not. That means for me, and since it's not creedal, that means for me that I can worship and take communion and participate in a church with people who believe that, who believe in the egalitarian framework. By the way, I do not like the word egalitarian. I prefer the term mutualism or mutuality. But I, I believe that, that I, can, I can fellowship with those people, and I would never exclude people from the church on that basis, even though I disagree, and sometimes on these issues I disagree vehemently with the way they've read the Bible. However, I would put it this way. If someone wants to be so contentious about this issue and raise it to such a, significant, a level of significance that they are causing disruption in the church, I would urge those people to find a different church Rather, where they will be more comfortable than having to cause so many splits and so much division. I've been around people for whatever topic is most important to them. I've been around Calvinists, and I've been around Arminians. I've been around egalitarians or mutualists, and I've been around complementarians. I've been around charismatics, and I've been around non-charismatics who seem to be able to turn every conversation into an argument about that topic. Those are the sorts of people who need to be told either you need to calm down and quit talking about this in public and causing heated arguments, or you need to find another church. That's a sad statement because that means that I have to separate from a brother or sister on the basis of a peripheral and secondary issue rather than on the finding fellowship on the basis of what is primary and creedal in our church traditions. So, uh, you know, that I've been around Christians who, who want to fight every day about eschatology. 
pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, rapture, amillennialism, et cetera. And every, every conversation seems to turn into something about that. Uh, I think that's very unfortunate. So, so let me uh, close with this then, Chaz. Okay. I go to a church where there are people in our church who are egalitarians. There are people who, like me, would prefer to use the word mutualism. And I go to a church uh, that, where there are people who are complementarians. This has never arisen into any conversation I've had in four years at my church. I know there are people who disagree with me. They know that I disagree with them. But we have chosen to get along on a different basis, and that basis is more than adequate to form a unity in our church with some difference. Yeah, and at the end of the day, it's majoring on what the majors are and yep. and yep, and keeping yep. intention the things and 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 at the end of the day having good conversations uh, yep. about dialogues that uh, will only make us better and um you know more equipped to be like Christ which is what as the church we should all be striving for and, and aiming towards and you know there are a number of issues today that divide churches besides complementarianism and mutualism uh, same-sex uh, relations mm-hmm. and stuff that that divides people. Mm-hmm. Uh, charismatic issues divide people. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, church leadership styles, worship styles. There, there are a lot of things like this, mm-hmm. and it is very sad to me when Christians can't get along on the basis of the deep unity that we have in Christ. That when we get to heaven. In the final kingdom of God, we're going to be one, and we are going to be embarrassed about the things that we refuse to cooperate with our <laughs> brothers and sisters on. Yeah. And so I want to lean, I want to work, I want to live into the unity that will characterize the eternal kingdom of God in the present now as I live with my brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than pretend that the divisions that I have are actually the walls to heaven. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a great way, I think, to end our uh, episode today and uh, us understanding that um, we need to come together on things. And we hope this podcast is a, a great forum and platform for you to, to think through some of these issues, um, but to also be equipped to uh, live out the the practical elements of, of how the kingdom is taking root in all of your lives, in your context, and in your churches. So um, thanks again so much for those of you who sent in questions. And um, uh, as always, want to encourage you to uh, subscribe to us, however you get your podcasts, and uh, give us a review or or let us know, you know what you think and um, send in those questions as well because we're going to have more of these episodes coming along the way. Well, thanks so much for joining us and we'll be with you next time. 